Well, let's go ahead and turn in our Bibles to Luke chapter 8, and we've made our way as far as verse 40, and that's where we'll be picking it up this morning. So chapter 8, verse 40, I'll give you a minute to turn there. The title of my message is One Touch and Two Words. Let's begin reading in verse 40. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him. For they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about twelve years of age, and she was dying. And Jesus went, and the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all of her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. And she came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. And immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? And when the When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. And while he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher any more." But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John's and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, child, Arise, and her spirit returned, and she got up at once, and he directed that something should be given to her to eat, and her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. As we continue through this section of Luke, Luke is demonstrating us for us the authority of Jesus Christ over the natural world. He first demonstrated that Jesus Christ had the ability to rebuke the seas. And as they were crossing the Sea of Galilee, making their way from the east to the west, a storm came up upon the sea. The disciples, uh, well, uh, for the technical term would be absolutely freaked out and uh, cried and said they were perishing. But Jesus was sleeping in the back of the boat, got up, rebuked the storm, and the storm stopped. 
making its way, his way to the other side, Jesus then encounters his appointment, the, the man that he was traveling to find, a man who had been severely possessed by many, many demons. And Jesus rebuked those demons, and those demons were cast out of that man, demonstrating Jesus' authority not only over the natural world, but over the supernatural world. In our last event here in chapter 8, he now shows and demonstrates his authority over disease and death itself. In two extraordinary accounts. And as we read this account together and look at it more closely, we are going to find that our faith as individual believers in Jesus Christ will often be tried by the timing of God. We will discover quickly, and if you haven't already, you for sure will eventually discover that the timeline that you have for yourself is not the timeline that God has for you. And often we feel that God is late in his response to the fulfilling of the promises in which he has made to us through his word. But I have realized that God's timing is always perfect, and mine appears to be always wrong after 30 years of walking with him. That God knows exactly what he is doing, and trusting him in that manner will help my faith to sustain when it appears that God delays in his response or in his answer. Two individuals of that society that were... Uh, considered vulnerable in the sociological aspect of the culture were women and children. Though both were preciously sought and uh, viewed by God, we know that the society itself gave very little voice for a woman and for a child in that time of history in that culture there in Israel. But Jesus responds to both. And we begin here in verse 40. As Jesus is making his way now from the west to the east, back to the city of Capernaum, he is met by a huge crowd of people welcoming him back to their city. And amongst them we find a man just absolutely distraught. For his 12-year-old daughter, his only child, is on the verge of dying. And he is now making his way to Jesus because he believes that Jesus is the only one that can keep her from dying. And so we pick it up in verse 40, and let's look at it more closely together. We begin with a father's plea, verse 40. And now when Jesus returned... The crowd welcomed him, for they were waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. The term ruler of the synagogue is a term in the Greek that would describe an individual that is truly the head of the elders. There needed to be ten elders to have a synagogue in Judaism. And he was the head of those ten elders. And he is now making his way, pushing his way through the crowd to reach Jesus, to ask Jesus to intercede on behalf of his only child. 
In so doing, he is aligning himself with Jesus. If the other elders of the synagogue had already predetermined, as we had seen earlier in our text, that this man, Jesus, was not the Messiah in whom they anticipated, but a false prophet come to deceive the nation, this man, by making his way to Jesus and asking him to intercede on his uh, daughter's behalf, was acknowledging the fact that this man could possibly believe that Jesus is the Messiah, therefore breaking ranks with the other elders within the synagogue. This was a big deal. It was an act of humility for this man to do this. But I ask you a question. You who are a parent or a grandparent, how far would you go to save your kids? What would you do? Would you be willing to risk it all in hopes that your child may be kept from dying as his only daughter appears to be? It's interesting that at 12 years old, this is his only daughter. In that culture, that's an interesting fact because men of the synagogue often tried to have as many children as possible to keep their legacy alive, to keep their family name alive. And it appears that this was the only child that he and his wife were able to have. And as a result, he knew that even when she married, she would be taking the name of her husband and his lineage would die. But yet, this daughter of his was so dear. You know, I initially thought that I always wanted to have boys as a dad. And then God, of course, like the Corvette, gave me a girl instead. And I'm so grateful he did. I'm so grateful that he did. And I would do anything for her. I can relate to Jairus. I can't imagine what he was going through. Early on in our ministry, when Dean and I, when we first started the church, and we literally started with absolutely nothing. It was just a handful of very excited people for the Lord, and it was, we had no money whatsoever. The podium, podium that we used, we actually garbage-picked something and cleaned it off and painted it, and the speakers were on milk crates that we painted. You know, we were aesthetic, but we had no money. We were broke as all get out. I was making uh, $180 a week, uh, and we didn't have health insurance at that time. And then, of course, like I had mentioned earlier, God's timing always being perfect, decided to bless us with our little girl. And unfortunately, the first thing I said to my wife when she told me and announced that we were going to have a child is I said, honey, it's not in the budget. That's what you call insensitive. Okay. And that's a, what you don't do in marriage. Um, Dean and I were both very fortunate that before entering into ministry, we both had very good jobs. We, were, uh, we had a uh, good living. Uh, we enjoyed vacations and new cars, etc. And then God called us to the ministry, and we had to learn to do with what God had provided. And there were nights where we knew that we were faced with the decision of taking our daughter to the emergency room and incurring all kinds of bills, and we were, or waiting on the Lord to see if He would heal her, because we just didn't have the money. And I remember one, I'm sure Dina does too, that one night she was just burning up. 
And we were holding her, and I could just feel how hot she was in my arms, you know. Uh, and I said, Lord, we don't have the money to go to the doctor. So, Lord, if, if you don't heal her, then I pray that you provide. And it was interesting because we went to the emergency room, and they were very gracious there, and they found out that we didn't have insurance and so forth. Um, and they asked if we wanted to write the bill off because of that, but I didn't feel that was proper, so I said, no, no, you send us the bill for what it is. And do you know, <laughs> I'm going to get teared up, because uh, after we received the bill, someone uh, sent us a check for that exact same amount of money. Didn't even know. But I understand, just from that little moment of holding our daughter and trying to debate if we should go or not, knowing that she was about to die, what would you be willing to do to rescue her from that fate? And in humility, he pushes through this crowd. He makes his way to Jesus, which in many cases could indicate that he was not only uh, uh, performing social suicide, but political and his, throwing his career away also by acknowledging that Jesus may be the Messiah. And notice what he says here. The ruler of the synagogue falling at the feet of Jesus. This is where the humility, I think, is displayed. Imploring him. The word there is begging with great earnest him to come to his house. And these were the individuals that just ridiculed Jesus. Now one's asking him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter about 12 years of age and she was dying. And notice here. And Jesus went. Amazing, the grace of God. Amazing that Jesus cared enough to just simply go because he had been asked to go. Now, something happens on the way. On the way, a woman comes up from behind him who herself also, for 12 years had been experiencing an issue of blood, some type of menstrual disorder. We don't know exactly what the infirmity was. And yet, she apparently had spent all of her money, the other gospel writers tell us, in pursuing physicians and looking to be healed. Now, it was an urgent thing that she did. Because in that culture... This issue of blood would consider her then ceremonially unclean and she could not enter into the synagogue area where women were permitted at that time and she was not enter allowed to enter into the temple. She was not uh, even to enter into an individual's home because her issue of blood could defile the whole home before God according to the Old Testament law. So this condition isolated her. It set her apart. It excluded her from a social interaction with the people of the city. She was by herself. There is no husband interceding for her to make things even more complicated. We have extra biblical writings that tell us that many of the Pharisees, when seeing a woman in such a condition, believed that it was due to some immorality that she had committed in her own personal life. 
And this was a curse from God, and therefore she must be further removed and further um, you know, isolated from the populace. Because again, you don't want to be somebody who can de- around somebody who can defile you and also who is cursed by God. You just don't want to do that. You don't want to be there and interact with them. But at the end of this all, she believed that after 12 years, and think of that, 12 years of isolation from doctor to doctor. Now, let us understand that the medical community back then, Luke was a doctor, he was a physician himself, which is very interesting. But many of the doctors back in that time practiced all kinds of medical treatments. Some were derived from Egypt, some were derived from uh, Greece and Rome, some were derived uh, from Babylon. And so you had all kinds of pagan practices integrated with medical treatment. So who knows what this woman uh, put herself through in hopes of being cured. She was in a desperate situation. Jesus was her last hope in all regards. And she apparently just superstitiously cries out and says, that's it, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, I will be healed. But by doing so, she was placing herself in a very critical position within that society. For again, she was meant to be isolated and avoided, and individuals were not to have contact with her. For her to touch a prophet of God, a man of God, a rabbi, she could be stoned for doing so in that culture. So by her reaching out in this way, this was her last-ditch effort to try to find healing. And so as Jesus is making his way to heal Jairus' daughter who is on the brink of dying, he is touched, I should say the hem of his robe is touched, and he recognizes that someone has touched him. Let's continue on here in verse 43. And Jesus went and the people pressed around him, verse 43, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all of her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. And so she came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garments, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. The, according to the Old Testament, the robes of the priests were meant to be uh, aligned with uh, tassels. And those tassels were an outward indication of their personal commitment to obey the commandments of God. And you can find that in the Old Testament. I believe I have the verses here for you. Uh, You can find them in Numbers and in Deuteronomy. I'll find that for you in just a minute. But that being said, as she is making her way, she says, if I can only touch those tassels, Numbers 52, I'll be healed. Now again, I believe that her initial intent was to get in there, just touch the tassels, because I believe that she believed that Uh, By touching the tassels, she wasn't in actuality touching him and therefore defiling him. 
But if I could only just touch these tassels. She didn't desire to cause anyone any harm. She didn't desire to make a spectacle of herself in any way, shape, or form uh, appeared upon her reaction when she is caught in the middle of it because Jesus feels the healing take place. As she touches the tassels, she's healed immediately. And one of the most unique things is said in verse 45. And Jesus said... Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter, you know, Peter, the master of the obvious, said, Master, the crowds surround you and and are pressing in on you. And the words in the Greek are, the crowds are uh, hempting you in and they are strangling you. What do you mean, who touched you? Have you ever walked through a crowd of people that thick? You know, it's one of the worst experiences in the world, especially on a 90-degree day, a taste of Chicago. And you're like, oh my goodness, you know? You're not supposed to get that close to people, I don't think. Because you're just wall-to-wall people trying to make your way through, you know? And... It's one of the most uncomfortable situations and Peter is trying undoubtedly to get Jesus to Jairus' house so that he can heal the daughter and yet now he has stopped in the middle of it and Jesus says, well, who touched me? And Peter's like, are you kidding me? What do you mean, who touched you? It's like saying, who looked at you? How are we going to ever discover that? And notice what Jesus says in verse 46, but then Jesus said, no, someone touched me. For I perceive that power has gone out from me. A better English translation of the Greek phrase for power has gone out from me is more, I would say, leaning towards power has gone through me. The power of the Father through him to heal the woman that had been healed. And Jesus sensed that in some way, shape, or form. This is the only time we have an act of this nature in the Scripture given to us, so it's hard to draw any real definitive conclusions about the nuances of it, just the fact that Jesus knew that the power went through him is sufficient for us. He knew something had happened. Something significant has just taken place. And he wanted to know who was it that touched him. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, that she wasn't going to get out of this, that she was exposed, is another word that could be used there, she came trembling. Well, we know why she was trembling. She was trembling because she could be put to death for touching a man of God in her condition. So what does she do? Just as Jairus did in the position of humility before Jesus and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And at this point, at that period in our text, we are totally now in the courtroom of the grace of God. For what shall God do next? Jesus could say to the elders of the synagogue, have her stoned for touching me in the defiled condition in which she came to me within. Jesus could have her simply put out of the city and he would have been uh, lawful for doing so. 
But see, her touching the garment or even touching him was not going to defile him by her condition because he was God. And he turns to her. And in one of the most endearing terms, only used here in Luke's gospel, he turns to her. This is the God of the universe. A woman throws himself at him in complete desperation, in complete you know, dire straits, and in humility. And he turns to her and in the most endearing thing calls her daughter. This is enormous. Now we would read through this and just say, oh, that's cute. No. He was saying to all the people that were around him, she is mine, don't you dare touch her. This is my daughter. This is the God of the universe saying this before them all. For her to hear this word, I can only imagine what went through her mind at that moment. Why is he treating me with such grace, such mercy, such love? Because this is who God is. He knew her situation. He knew her backstory. He knew all about her. And I have no doubt that he knew who touched him, but wanted everyone else to know who touched him so they could hear this word, specifically Jairus, who was asking him to come. And he says to her daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. In one moment, with one touch, her entire life after 12 years of pain, suffering, sadness, loneliness has been restored to her. And now the God of the universe says, go in peace. Trouble yourself no longer. You're healed, my daughter. You are healed. The grace of God is one of the aspects of God that I don't know if I'll ever fully understand until I'm face to face with him. We don't know if this woman was immoral and that caused the issue of blood. We don't know what caused her situation, but Jesus healed her. Her faith was desperate, and some may even say that her faith was just simply superstitious belief that if she could touch the hem of his garment, but to God it was serious enough to say, no, I'll, I'll heal you. Because there was something more in store here. You see, God didn't just want to heal her of her disease. God wanted to heal her whole person. When we talk about becoming a Christian, God is not simply just wanting to forgive you of your sins. That's a, that's a huge point of it, but it's not the only point of it. And he doesn't just simply want to clothe you with his righteousness so that way before God the Father, we stand in perfection, not in and of ourselves, but through Christ. And people reduce salvation to simply that, the, the elimination of our sins and the robing of righteousness around us. But if you read through the New Testament, God's plan for you because he loves you too much to leave you the way he found you, was to restore you to the image of him. 
the image that was distorted at the fall of man in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. When sin entered into this world and then death followed that sin. God is looking to restore you. And though while we are on this earth, we will always be a work in progress. We're never going to be perfected here on this earth. But we are in the process of being perfected. We are a work in progress. God is not only simply wiping away your sins and clothing us with His righteousness, He's also making us whole again. And that is what He desired for her by calling her daughter and saying to her in a very dynamic way, Go in shalom, peace, because now you have peace with God through Christ. Well, this, of course, distracted him from getting to Jairus' home, verse 49. And while he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's home came and said, your daughter is dead. And in the Greek, it's in the definitive. She's dead. It's too late. And it is clarified by the next phrase that says, do not trouble the teacher anymore. It's too late even for him. She's dead now. Let's just go on with the mourning process. Let's go through the funeral process. It's over now. She's dead. I love when they believe that God has been backed into a corner. I love John 11 when Jesus is making his way to his friend's home, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And Lazarus was had become ill and Jesus got word of it and delayed his coming four days until after the fact Lazarus died and by the time Jesus had arrived four days later Lazarus was in the tomb already and the first thing that Jesus hears by uh, when he first entered into that small town was by one of the sisters Martha coming to him and saying if you had only been here Jesus you could have saved our brother from dying you know you imagine scolding Jesus and then it being recorded in the Bible for all eternity for all of us to read you know and then of course we have Jesus's reaction oh darn it you know mm, I told Peter to get packing and he just didn't listen and well there's nothing more we can do he's dead and buried so shall we mourn and then get on with the funeral and I'll say a few words on his behalf? Right? Is that what your Bible says? No. The stage was set. And Jesus, seeing the condition of all those who mourned at Lazarus' death, he began to weep himself, seeing the effects of death on his own creation. Came down to the middle of the grave yard before the stone of Lazarus's tomb, cried out to his father and said, Father, thank you. Now they'll know that I am the resurrection and the life. And called Lazarus by name to come forward. I believe that if he would have said, just come forth, the whole graveyard would have emptied. And it would be zombie apocalypse according to the book of John. And as a result, Lazarus comes forward. 
and all rejoice. Now Jesus was in perfect control of everything going on and taking place here in our story. He could have brushed off the woman who touched him and was healed to simply gain further time and, and, you know, and to assist Jairus in his situation, but no, he stopped because the restoration of this woman was equally important to Jesus as was the restoration of Jairus' daughter. Notice here, don't trouble the teacher anymore, but Jesus on hearing this answered, and undoubtedly looking at Jairus, do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. The fear was undoubtedly caused by the fact that in Jairus' mind, it was too late. It was beyond hope. It was finalized in his mind. This was the point that his personal uh, intervention and his personal limitations come to an end. He could do nothing more about it, so fear gripped his heart. He was no longer in control of the narrative, so fear gripped his heart. He knew that the moment that, that he saw as an window of opportunity had passed. Undoubtedly, as a father who is running out to try to save his only daughter, he feels that he has failed in not getting Jesus to her in time. You can imagine all the things going through his mind that are just welling up in fear and holding his heart captive. But see, that fear was keeping him from faith. And Jesus is trying to break through all of that noise, all of that clutter. He's trying to break through to Jairus and says, No, rise above it and just believe. Trust me. Trust me at this moment. Trust me at this point. I know that this 12-year-old little girl is the apple of your eye, that she is everything for you and to you. Trust me, believe in me, and she will be well. And he demonstrates that belief not by a declaration of faith, but by allowing Jesus to continue into his home. Verse 51. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one in, that is Jesus, to enter with him, except Peter and John and James. These were the three that we are going to find and discover that Jesus is truly pouring himself into that will be leaders after his ascension. He wants Peter and John and James to know what he was truly capable of. And he also allowed the father and the mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. The New Testament uses the word sleeping for the death of one who is a believer in Jesus Christ. For you and I who are Christians, death is not something to be feared. In actuality, I've discovered in my time as a pastor 
that people aren't nearly as afraid of death itself, but more afraid of how they are going to die. And that's a difficult situation. However, though that being said, he is saying here that death is for the believer is like falling asleep. At 51 years old, I have renewed my appreciation for nap time. Sometimes it's just imposed upon me. I'll be sitting there watching a show with my daughter, and all of a sudden I'll hear, Dad! Dad! And there's the credits, and you know, she's like, Will you just give me the remote if you're going to fall asleep on me? You know. But that being said, sleep is not something to fear. Because the moment the Bible says we close our eyes here in this earth is the moment that we open them in heaven for all eternity. And the suffering and the pain and the limitations and the, and the aches and the pains and everything has gone away at that point as we enjoy heaven with the Lord for all eternity. But they laughed at him in a mocking way when he said this, that she was simply sleeping, knowing that she physically was dead. Luke, being a physician, I believe, wanted all of his readers, specifically Theophilus, to know, he's the one that he wrote the letter to, that she was actually dead. This isn't something where he just shook her and woke her up or sprinkled her with some cold water and she revived. She was physically dead. And they mocked him for saying that she was simply sleeping. Well, how did he know? He wasn't there. He didn't see. This is where personal rationale, you know, is limited by our limited perspective on the situation. And hampered by our own personal ability. They, had no, they could do nothing to bring her back from the dead and Jesus could do everything. And notice what he does here. In verse 54, but by taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Telemachume, in the Greek, which means daughter arise, or little girl arise. Some say little lamb arise. The Hebrew scholars can say that kume can also represent lamb. Little lamb arise, and she did. And notice here, her spirit returned and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given her to eat. This once again reminds us that our true identity is not the physical body in which we have. It is the spirit that was within us. Before coming to Jesus Christ, that spirit was dead. And we live for our bodily appetites. We live to, f- to fulfill the appetites and the wants of our own physical bodies. And whatever it wanted, we uh, appeased it by giving it. Uh, and therefore, that's what guided us. That's what led us through this world. But the moment we become a Christian, the Bible says we become a new creation in Jesus Christ. All old things have passed away. All things become brand new to us. And the Spirit is resurrected within us. It is that Spirit that is truly who we are. It is that Spirit that grows when we learn the Word of God and we read and understand it. 
It is that Spirit through the Holy Spirit that produces fruit in our life, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, etc. It is that Spirit in which we worship God in and through, for God must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. It is that resurrected Spirit. Now, I often argue that people who don't know Christ will argue with me saying, but I am alive, I am ascension being, I am truly living. And I argue from a biblical perspective, no, you're not living at all, you're simply surviving, you're existing. There is so much more to life through Christ than there is anything in this world. And individuals must realize that we are not the physical beings. These are mere tents, Paul writes, shells that allow us to interact and to navigate this created world. But this physical form is not exactly who I am. It is the spirit that God is working in and through me. It is that spirit that goes to heaven. It is that spirit that will be clothed with the new body that God has for me in all eternity, 2 Corinthians 5. It is that spirit that will enjoy the new body that Christ has for me and will be no longer subjected to any aspects of death. This is why I can be so confident that when someone comes to Jesus Christ, he is capable of releasing them from the bondage in which they have subjected themselves. I can't tell you the number of people on drugs that I have seen be free of their drug addiction after coming to Christ, or their drinking addiction, or their pornography addiction, because now they have a new spirit within them that no longer desires those things. And now in the new life, when the flesh says, I want these things, you know what we can say? No. And God gives us the power to say no and to walk away. After becoming a Christian, I never drank again. I never did drugs again after becoming a Christian. You know why? I didn't want to. And then I realized that whatever entertainment I thought that those things brought to my life were nothing compared to the joy and the peace that I had in my new life in Jesus Christ. Just incredible. So her spirit returned. She got up at once. Now look at this. This is, this is the heart of our God. One asking that she be fed. Her sickness, undoubtedly, probably kept her from eating. And Jesus was that attentive to even feed this little girl. This is our God, who says that he has every tear that we've ever cried in a bottle. Every hair on our head numbered and subtracting quickly in some of our cases. But he knows us personally, deeply, and intimately, and individually. He knows you so well that he brought you here today to hear this word. He wants you to know that he loves you more than you can possibly ever imagine. And if you will come to him, if you will give your life to him, he will give you new life in return. Now, God doesn't promise that he'll provide everything that we want, but he guarantees that he will provide everything that we need. God also is able to restore us to that wholeness that we have never enjoyed apart from him due to the effect of sin and death in our life. 
And though becoming a Christian doesn't mean that everything becomes rosy and that we don't struggle with difficulties at times. But I do guarantee you that when we do struggle with difficulties, we never struggle with those difficulties alone any longer. He is with us. And He will never leave us nor forsake us. But often our faith is challenged because of the timing of God's intervention. When I became a Christian, one of the first things I had to get past was the fact that growing up, I was adopted into a family that unfortunately was dominated by alcoholism. And I couldn't believe that God would ever let me grow up in such a difficult situation. But little did I know that what he was doing was preparing my heart to receive him. And that moment that I was given the invitation to receive Jesus as my Savior and my Lord was the moment that I embraced him because you know what? I knew I needed to. I knew I was going nowhere in life. I knew that things were only going to get worse, that I needed something greater than myself in my life. And when that biker so graciously shared Jesus with me, I said, you know what? That's it. I broke down. And my life has never been the same since. And not only that, but now I can say that my mom, who unfortunately struggled with alcoholism over 50 years of her life, in 2014 became a Christian and she stopped drinking afterwards. And she is now in heaven with the Lord and I will see her again. I just saw my dad recently and he is once again reading through the Bible. And he's 90 years old. And uh, he, uh, we gave him a hat because this really sums up his disposition. It says, I'm 90, what's your excuse? I thought that was pretty good. But do you know, not only did God allow me to go through those difficulties to bring me to the point where I'd receive him, but he also, in his love and his grace, allowed me to be a witness to my family so they too could have eternal life through Jesus Christ. See, he wasn't just interested in me. He wanted to save my whole family, not just me. And sometimes God's timing, God's intervention doesn't make sense to us, but in the grand scheme of things, it'll all come together. Some years ago, my daughter wanted to go to the Art Institute. And uh, I was not really thrilled about it. You know, I like the science of industry. Give me trains and airplanes and those kind of things. And the art, it's just like art, you know, art. You know, okay, yeah, that's pretty, you know. But I have to tell you, I loved it. I enjoyed it thoroughly. But there was one painting that we were looking at that was painted by, with a series of dots. And I, Sorry, I forgot the name of the, the artist and the painting's uh, title. But it was a series of dots. And if you look very closely, it's just a bunch of dots. And you're just like, wow, I could do that. You know, if I had a toothpick and do all that. But then, as you step back... And the farther you got away from it, it just came all into focus, the beauty of this painting. And so often we are just like that in regards to the events of our life. Because of our limited perspective and that we are confined to the microcosm of this particular individual day, we are like the person 
up close to that painting and we can't make heads or tails out of it. All we do is see a bunch of dots. But as time goes on and God gives us further perspective through him and ultimately we are going to see the painting that he was creating and go, wow, Lord, you are unbelievable. But at the moment, it just sometimes looks like a bunch of dots, doesn't it? You just don't get it. You just don't get it. I'll never forget the first time I gave my daughter a dot to dot to do. You remember those puzzles? A dot to dot. And she, I said, you got to connect the dots. And so she connected the dots. And I'm looking at them like, I don't know what that is. Oh, I forgot to tell her you got to do it by numbers. You know, she, can, she did exactly what I told her to do. She connected the dots. But she forgot to do it by the numbers, so the picture was skewed. So often we're trying to connect the dots of our lives apart from the numbers. The numbers are the Word of God. And we're coming up with a distorted picture when God says, if you do it my way, then you'll understand what I am doing in and through you.